You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host, Chad Dundas from BleacherReport.com. And joining us, as always, from USA Today and MMAJunkie.com, it's your friend and mine, it's Ben Folks. Ben, how, how are you holding up on this Monday after uh, what sounded like a, a pretty long and taxing weekend for you? Oh, yeah? It sounded that way? Well, I'm just saying you wouldn't that, know anything about it, would you? Oh no, not at all. Uh, I was uh, to try to move the theatricalist Sir Nigel Longstock on on Sunday and uh, uh, noticed that you were uh, noticeable by your absence and uh, questioned it publicly on the Twitter machine. Yes, you did. And you told me that uh, you were still working. That's working right. Working on Sunday after pulling what essentially was a double shift the day before with the back to back UFC shows. Yeah. Basically, uh, I think I think we need a union. I was just going to ask. Starting to get out of hand. Yeah, it sounds like you guys might want to look in, look into a craft union, a tradesmen's association of some sort. I take it you didn't spend twelve hours sitting there watching mixed martial arts action on Saturday. Oh hell no! Even if I had wanted to, I wouldn't have been able to. What does that mean? Uh, I have a life with things that need to be taken care of no, in don't. in uh, in the real world, the outside actual environment. You might fool some listeners of the CME with that stuff, but I, I know, I know you. I know what's going on in your personal life. You think I was just like sitting around watching other stuff all day? Pretty much, yeah. I think you're watching cartoons. Well, that's a, that's a harsh charge. A harsh <laughs> judgment on my character, frankly. Uh, Ben, this week's music comes to us from DJ John Douglas out of Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Man, DJ John Douglas is such a Canadian DJ name. You know what? I, I like it. I, I think it's awesome that a DJ uh, would would use his real name. I can't, not everyone can be Spinderella. Am I right? <laughs> How do you know his real name is, is John Douglas? Fine point. Fine. T- I, in fact, I'm going to come out and say I would like it better if DJ John Douglas was DJ John Douglas's stage name. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, for all you know, his real name is like Velociraptor Jones or something. And uh, he, he wanted to keep it straight Canadian. Just go DJ John Douglas. I appreciate yeah, that. Maybe he was maybe his real name is Ice Cube and he was like, Well, that's not gonna work. That's <laughs> yeah, taken. Yeah. Unfortunate. Uh, he describes his work as down tempo, hip hop ish, electro sort of music. I don't really know what that means, so I'm well, looking forward to hearing it. You're that. gonna find out. If you like what you hear, you can find more of his work at his website, Mr. John slash music. Or you can go to soundcloud.com slash DJ John Douglas. Wonderful. Absolutely wonderful. And if you want to get your boner pills, you can hit up drjohndouglas.com. What about my free testosterone levels? That last part was not true. Okay. Three rounds as usual this week for the co-main event podcast. In round number one, well, it turned out that not even Vanderlei Silva wanted to watch two UFC events in one day. At least not without a few cocktails to wash away the feeling of being the biggest villain in mixed martial arts. Ooh. He's taking it kind of rough for Vanderlei. Uh Uh-huh. He needs a drink right about now. In round two... 
What's the perfect ending for ten and a half hours of fairly irrelevant MMA fights? How about Stipe Miocic knocks out a light heavyweight in 35 seconds? Stipe! I'll take that walking away. And in round number three, this weekend, the UFC returns to Albuquerque as ostensible number one ranked lightweight contender Benson Henderson takes on ostensible not top ten guy Rustam Habaloff. I don't feel like you said that right, but okay. Rustam? Rustam? Either oh, Rustam. Just move on. We could just call him Rust, like okay. Rust Colvin yeah. in uh, True Detective. Yeah, but is he like the uh, earlier held, barely held together version of Rust Cole, or is he, you know, rock bottom, uh, drinking and making little, little tiny men out of the beer can, Rust Cole? I think at at 155 pounds, you'd have to go early. Okay, early Rust Cole. Those scenes filmed while uh, McConaughey was still doing Dallas Buyers Club, probably. <laughs> right. Uh, we're going to do all that, plus the triumphant return of Master Tweet Theater as Sir Nigel Longsog is back from sabbatical. Uh, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But right now, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail comes to us from Martin Shoemaker. He writes, this weekend we watched in awe as Lord Clarence Byron Dalloway took Frankie Cars out for a test drive and rode him all the way into the middleweight top 10. What's next for Lord Clarence in his ascension up the ranks? Thanks. Uh, well, Ben, you know, we are kind of under the gun here. There's a lot of pressure for us on this one because right. the last time Lord Clarence Byron Dalloway went and pulled out a victory, we uh, correctly predicted the next matchup for him against Francis Carmont. And in fact, during this week's, uh, one of this week's two UFC events that I assume as a nod to our brilliance was the co-main event That's right. of the, uh, UFN 41 in Berlin. Basically we, we made this fight. We pretty much put it at this position on the fight card. We did everything, but, uh, Sign the checks for these two guys. That's uh, right. We handed out the uh, probably good for nebulous them. post-fight bonuses. Yeah. Uh, you know, looking at the uh, at the UFC middleweight top fifteen, I think you got three options here. But I, I want I'm going to kick it over to you. I want to see if we come up with the same stuff here. Oh, if you're, you're not ready gonna, to go. If you're, you're not, not going to tell, I want to hear your options. Well, I can first. yeah, I can tell you who I think is out there for for Clarence Byron Dalloway. Um, I think you got three options. I think you either go uh, Gegard Mousasi. Who got a win that same night? He would be disappointed by that, but okay. Uh, well, he's going to be disappointed regardless. <laughs> yeah. Let's be honest. Uh, I think you got your Costas Philippou, who got a win uh, earlier this month over Lorenz Larkin. I think actually that's probably your uh, your most likely, most even matchup for CB Dalloway. And then, of course, you got my guy, the Soldier of Dog, Yoel Romero. <laughs> what are you calling him now? The Soldier of Dog. Okay. I, I see. Uh, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't hate on either of those, or any of those matchups right there. Well, you mentioned that Musasi would probably be disappointed. No, I think that CB Dalloway is probably going to be disappointed. Uh, you know, if he comes in with Costa Filippo, uh, or maybe Yoel Romero, I don't know. That seems like a tough matchup against a guy who doesn't have as much experience. And, you know, if you're CB Dalloway, you probably think is not as well regarded as you. But you look at the top of the middleweight top 10, I don't think you're getting into Luke Rockhold or Tim Kennedy territory if you're CB Dalloway. And after that, uh, you don't have a lot of options there. Yeah, that is true. And, you know, I, I look at the rankings and it's like, you see, Frankie Carr's there at number eight, and so logic, or at least on the number eight on the the MMA junkie rankings, the only rankings that matter. Uh, and yeah, those rankings can contain fighters from other 
organizations? Yes. yes oh, so they are more relevant than the ones that the UFC puts out. That's right. And we don't just like arbitrarily take people on and leave other people off uh, according to rules that we no. make up after the fact. Wait a second, though. Do you ask people who work for other companies to compose free content for you to use? No, we do not. Oh, that's weird. Yeah, it huh. is. <laughs> you know, you'd be surprised how many people are willing to do that. You should, <laughs> I, I should am, put out a call. I, in fact, am surprised often by that. Um, yeah, I mean, that, that'd all be pretty good stuff for him. It, it still seems like, uh, I don't know if you caught after, uh, the Connecticut Blue Blood, Lord Clarence Byron Dalloway won the fight and then was just totally exhausted in his post fight speech. I don't know if you caught Dana White's little dig at him there on Twitter. Uh, he talks about, uh, how dynamic he is on the mic. Um, which, first of all, what happened to the Dana White of last week who was criticizing anyone who said that Hen Burrell's difficulty with English might be, hurting his marketability because, hey, if you're coming here to listen to two guys talk, uh, then you're in the wrong sport. Um, he seemed to have changed his mind about the importance of talking uh, pretty quickly. Uh, but also, it seems like, you know, the USC still just not thrilled about CB Dalloway in general. Uh, so kind of seems like they're probably not going to give him a, a super huge fight based on this performance, right? Well, yeah, you, you're you're probably right about that. Uh, and and he, even though he, he got this win and... and uh, uh, he, he's, he will, you know, deserve a step forward and, and, and a, a good matchup for himself. He's also not a guy that's really setting the world on fire. Uh, and you know, he's probably one of those guys that we think of as a known commodity because he's been around for so long and we watched him come off the ultimate fighter. Uh, and, and a, a guy that we, you know, rightly or wrongly probably think of as a middle of the pack guy and a guy who's not going to, uh, suddenly turn out to be the champion or something like that because we've seen so much from him in the past. Uh, I, I think it was admirable when he, de, uh, did the, the pre-fight interview with, I believe, Matt Erickson over Steve at, Morocco, uh, oh, was it Morocco? I think so. Uh, can't keep track of you guys no. with, uh, the shifts you pull. It's right. crazy. Um, yeah, but I know what you're talking about where he talks about right. how he was losing money essentially going over to Berlin to fight on fight. Yeah, pass. he pretty much admitted that it was a bad deal for him to do this, but was sort of like, uh, after I win, then I'll be set up for something bigger because I'll be down to the last fight on my contract, et cetera, et cetera, which I would describe as, uh, the classic fighter psychology, uh, but also like kind of shockingly uh, honest and I think commendable for him to admit that. Yeah, uh, and maybe a little bit risky um, because we know that the UFC doesn't look kindly on that kind of a thing. But it also those it does kind of confirm what a lot of us have suspected, right? That like guys uh, going over there to fight on these fight pass events at like weird times and foreign lands are kind of getting screwed. Uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, he talked about the, the sponsor situation with this, that he couldn't really charge his sponsors the, the full price. Because they're bros. <laughs> because they're bros, and he wants to remain bros with his bros, uh, especially the ones who pay him. So, yeah, there's a lot of s stuff that clearly the fighters are, are factoring in here, whether the UFC wants to acknowledge it or not. Uh, and it's good that he was willing to talk about that and kind of highlight that issue, because it really does kind of make you think twice. If the dude fighting in the co-main event... Uh, feels like he is losing money by by participating in this fight. Speaking of money, let's go on to the second question this week, which comes to us from Mike Morgan. He writes, John Jones has still not signed on to face Alexander Gustafson at UFC 177, and it's starting to get under the skin of Dana White. Do you gentlemen think Mr. Jones is miffed at the UFC for announcing the fight without his agreement to the bout, or is there something else behind the delay? Uh, you know, I just wrote about this today on on Bleacher Report and just sort of underscoring the fact that whatever John Jones does, it seems like 
is going to be made out to be uh, rancorous and sort of like overexposed by the the MMA public at this point. When the truth is, even though we're making kind of a big deal about the fact that John Jones hasn't signed to fight Alexander Gustafson yet, uh, Jones is kind of being coy about it, and Dana White uh, seemed a little bit miffed about it when they uh, when they interviewed him over in Berlin this weekend. Uh, this kind of seems like a normal contract renegotiation so far to me because. Uh, you know, we've seen the UFC embedded video uh, that, right. that made the, the rounds a lot this week where Lorenzo Fertitta says uh, he's going to talk to John Jones's manager. He's going to tell him why it makes sense for him to fight Alexander Gustafson. He's going to walk him through why it right. makes sense. Which is, which is the weird part of the a, quote. A great way of putting it. The uh, the not weird part of the quote is where he then adds at the end, and we're going to offer him the opportunity to extend his contract. Well, first what he says is we're going to extend his contract, and then he kind of checks himself and he says we're going to make an offer to extend his contract. Like he, you know, I think that might be you know just a little slip, uh, but it also seems like a slip that's in line with maybe how the UFC uh, sees its role in these sort of negotiations, where it thinks it just ought to be able to tell you guys, oh hey, by the way, we're extending your contract, uh, and then kind of sometimes gets like weirdly indignant when guys are like, well, I don't know if I like those terms. Yeah. Well, I mean, it seems we, we all know it's sort of standard practice for the UFC to try to extend their guys before their contracts run out. Especially uh, the champions. That makes especially sense. the champions, which is, is I think for obvious reasons. Plus you got the champions clause in the uh, standard UFC fighter contract that says if your contract lapses uh, and you're the champion, you basically have to wait a year uh, before you could uh, get, free of your contract and go Still fight. It'd be interesting to see that one challenged in court. Right. There, there, there's a lot of speculation about whether or not that would hold up to a legal challenge. But like, I just see this as a situation where the UFC comes to John Jones and they want as a uh, part of him signing on to fight Alexander Gustafson, they want him to re up on another multi-fight deal, which I'm sure he, uh, you know, wants to do, but, this is the company's chance to try to re-sign him to a lo- another long-term deal. And it's also like his chance to renegotiate before he enters into that deal. So like with all the conspiracy talk and the, Oh, what's John Jones mad about talk? Like, yeah, maybe he's unhappy with some things, but like, this is the time for him to do that. Like, yes. If they want to sign him to a new deal, this is the time for him to renegotiate. So it doesn't seem like that big of a deal to me. Especially when uh, you think about how the UFC has done this with like other fighters with Anderson Silva where they're constantly signing him to like – it just re-upped with like an eight-fight deal or a ten-fight deal, all this kind of stuff, you know, where if they're trying to extend his contract for that long uh, a period, uh, that's about where the fighter starts to look at how many years he wants to still be doing this or thinks he has, how many good years he still thinks he has in him. He might get to the point where he's thinking, who knows, this could be my last big contract. I want to make sure I'm getting paid what I'm worth. Especially a guy like John Jones who is going to have some for real managers uh, working for him. Uh, guys are going to know that right now he is the guy that the UFC really needs. Anderson Silva is gone for the moment. George St. Pierre is gone. Uh, they, John Jones is in a lot of ways their, their guy now, their big superstar that they should really be getting behind and really pushing. Uh, and so he's going to want to be paid like it. Like, I don't, I think that this is one of those things though, where maybe the UFC has miscalculated. It seems like they think that they can just kind of put some, some, public pressure on John Jones to do this fight and that he'll look bad. He'll look like he's scared of, of Alexander Gustafson or something. And I don't know if it's going to play that way. I think that you're going to find that uh, even if fans aren't always crazy about John Jones, the person, uh, they still want to see fighters get paid and that you're not going to have a whole lot of people signing, uh, siding with management and stuff like this. 
Yeah, it's a two-way street, really, obviously, because they go out uh, and announce that they're targeting this Alexander Gustafson fight for UFC 177 on August 30th in Las Vegas, which is sort of like the UFC. Well, I guess it's one of two things. Either the UFC is confident that they're going to get the deal signed and the fight can go on, or they're trying to squeeze John Jones a little bit right. by being like, hey, asshole, remember what happened at UFC 151? Like, you can't really drop out of another fight. People are going to think you're a pussy, et cetera, et cetera. Sport killer. But I think that goes the other way too. Uh, with John Jones, I think you talked about this last week that if uh, you know if they're going to go and start advertising fights without uh, one of the principals agreeing to it, like that kind of gives him some power too to sort of hold the company's feet to the fire with with some of those uh, demands that we imagine that that he might make. Uh, you know, and and especially for a guy like John Jones who's going to have a little bit more bargaining power than a lot of other fighters because. Uh, you know, if he's if he's a guy who decided that he wanted to leave the UFC, uh, I think he would have to do so at the expense of his own legacy. But at the same time, he's one of the only guys in the entire MMA landscape that could really be a game changer for a company like Bellator, for instance. Like if you're Bellator and you're backed by Viacom. And again, because of the champion clause and other things like that, I don't think this is going to happen. But it's kind of fun to entertain the fantasy. Like if you're Bellator, uh, it's worth it to pay John Jones kind of an insane amount of money if you wanted to get him. Because yeah. he's one of the few guys that could come in immediately, maybe double or triple your television ratings and also pop your pay-per-view buy rates if you put him in, I guess, three uh extremely winnable fights for him <laughs> against the three light heavyweights that you have that uh, could main event pay-per-views. So, uh, you know, because of the, the legal wrangling that I think it would take to do it, uh, I, I don't see that that being a real possibility at this point, but like, be kind of interesting if Viacom realized that this was a guy it might want to open the purse strings for. That would be interesting. And like you said, uh, probably mostly a fantasy, uh, but an interesting one nonetheless. You know, I just hope that, uh, Sounds like John Jones is, is playing this one smart uh, and not letting himself be squeezed too much in the the court of public opinion. I hope he gets paid, man, because they they need to to open up and pay that man his money. He is worth a lot to the UFC right now. Uh, and if you want to have a, a superstar like that around, then you need to pay him superstar money. Third question this week comes from Reese Burgess. He writes. Is it my imagination, or did I see the semblance of a smile on Gegard Mousasi's face in his post-fight interview? Is that the closest thing to a personality that we're going to see out of the dream catcher? Uh, now the young vagabond, sweet and sassy, Musasi goes out and uh, really wears Mark Munoz around like a button yes, he in did. the main event of the fight night from Berlin this weekend. Uh, and then, yeah, during his post-fight interview with Dan Hardy, he uh, cracked a smile and... Uh, came right up to the edge of calling out Luke Rockhold or Tim Kennedy <laughs> and then was like, nah, you know what? I'm not calling anybody out, but I'm going to get somebody who just won a fight. Did you see the picture of him? I assume it's after the fight. It looks like maybe like in the hotel bar uh, and he's standing there holding a beer, <laughs> wearing a T-shirt that says, I heart Berlin on it. I did it. see that. And I, <laughs> and I saw that picture and I wondered... Is Musasi running more of an ironic sense of humor than maybe we give him credit for? I don't think so. You think he's wearing that 100% uh, full-heartedly? I think, you he's know. He's whole ass in it. He was, he was walking around town, uh, killing some time before his fight. Saw that t-shirt uh, from like a sidewalk vendor in Berlin and thought, you know what? I do heart Berlin. It's a nice place here. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna buy this T-shirt, and then of course throws it on post fight uh, post fight festivities. 
I'm loving it, man. <laughs> yeah, no. I love a- to think about Musasi as just basically like like a, a tourist uh, whose sensi- fashion sensibilities are in line with your dad's, and he's just roaming the earth as a, the young vagabond, winning fights and collecting souvenirs. See, I like to think almost the exact opposite, that he's like an ironic teen that almost can't be bothered. You know what I mean? Where <laughs> yes. he's just like, oh, man, I'm like, yeah, fine. Yes, I'll fight Mark Munoz, whatever. Let's just get it over <laughs> get with. Get out of my room. Yeah, and then he just laughs his ass off at his I Heart Berlin t-shirt, goes out, gives his fake ID to the bartender, and gets that beer. <laughs> Happy. He's going to have a good night. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the fight. We only got a couple minutes before we should move on to uh, other business. But, uh, you know, probably it's a good win for Musasi, uh, especially that he goes out there and obliterates Mark Munoz and gets a stoppage, you know, for a guy that we've we've just what we just said, questioned his uh, uh, his insistence maybe a little bit in the past. And uh, by the same token, a terrible loss for Mark Munoz, who is a guy who I think a lot of people had much higher hopes for, both when he came into the UFC and then when he eventually cut down to middleweight, where I think uh, a lot of us thought he was going to be a lot more successful than he has been. Yeah, you're right definitely about Mark Munoz. This was the loss, I think, that kind of signaled like, man, maybe he's just not going to develop into that fighter. We all thought that he was on the verge of becoming after he had a pretty good win streak going there. Uh, and it just seemed like uh, relying way too much on just straight-up wrestling ability. And Musasi had a really good game plan for dealing with that. You know, you could tell from his stance very early on that he felt like that was the main thing he needed to worry about with Munoz and had an answer for for all those takedown attempts, really kind of used that momentum against uh, Mark Munoz and seized the opportunity there to put him away. Uh, really, really impressive from Musasi and the kind of thing that makes you think like, okay, like the book isn't closed on that guy. He's still a work in progress uh, and uh, could, could still get a lot better. And also kind of makes you feel like maybe Munoz's future is going to be in coaching and running that gym. And uh, just so we don't get a ton of tweets about it, uh, maybe a couple of blatant illegal blows from Musasi. looked like he hit Munoz in the back of the head a couple of times, which is sort of the holding penalty of uh, mixed martial arts. You could throw that flag on every play if you wanted to. But then I thought, and you're the expert here, a couple of like blatant 12 to 6 elbows to the side of Mark Munoz's dome uh, when, he, when he had him on his hands and knees there uh, just prior to the, uh, the finishing sequence. No, I don't think so. You don't think so? It's damn near impossible to throw like a true 12 to 6 elbow. You really have to be trying. Well, that seems like a great rule then. Yeah, no, it's a stupid rule. That was kind of the point of the, the thing I, I wrote about it. Uh, and also, like, the thing with punching a guy in the back of the head, I mean, I, I know that Chad Dundasso Dundas is not going to come in here and hate on that. That's your whole whole thing, man. No, it's only ever cost a guy once, right? And that's Brock Lesnar against Frank Mir, where, they, uh, where Steve Mazzagatti jumped in and kind of like uh, – separated them i think i think it also didn't didn't eric silva get disqualified uh, in a fight he was clearly winning uh yeah but he probably got warned though i don't even think they warned lesnar in that first lesnar or first uh mere fight and could be wrong but he was just like a basically a big toddler still new to the sport he didn't know the damn rules those were great days (laughs) uh well that's gonna do it for listener mail this week if you have a question a comment a concern that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks you know how to get a hold of us you can go to the website comainevent.com and click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast that will get you in touch with us as for right now though we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one.
Well, Ben, it's hard to know where to even start in talking about all of this weirdness that has been breaking uh, for the better part of the last several days between Vanderlei Silva and Chael Sonnen and Vitor Belfort and uh, all of their proposed bout, I guess you would say, at uh, UFC 175. Um, I assume that most of the people who are listening to this podcast will have followed the many ins and outs of this story. Uh, so maybe we start at the end and... Uh, uh, work backwards in a way. Uh, Vanderlei Silva no-showed the Tough Brazil 3 finale on Saturday night. Depending on who you believe, uh, he was either told to not be there or just didn't show up when they thought he was going to. Uh, reportedly spent the evening instead in a bar in Curitiba, awesome. which is awesome. Yeah. Uh, God, I wish I was at that bar in Curitiba. I know. How awesome would that be? Uh, and then... Uh, Vanderlei, let's do some shots, man. Come on. Uh, ultimately got booed. Uh, in Sao Paulo, booed the shit out of him. At, uh, Just at, the mention of his name. At the mention of his name, which uh, you know speaks to maybe uh, uh, the backlash against you know what we think to be the the his moves in the last several days but also i think just goes to show you that when the fight company decides that it's going to heal on you it will That's and right. can do it effectively yeah bad bad uh sequence of events for Vandalay because you know it used to be not too long ago where even though we all kind of acknowledged that uh, Vandalay was toward the tail end of his career he still had this kind of beloved status got sort of a pass on uh, a lot of the stuff that might have stuck to him before you know some of his behavior in the public sphere plus all the questions about some of those pride fights and what exactly some of the dudes on in pride were on but everybody just loved them some fucking old school Vanderlei Silva shit so they look past that you know and then now it seems like all at once uh, a couple little things happen here and everybody turns on him i guess the th question is though like are what are they reacting to is it that uh they just thought he came off like an asshole in this rivalry with Chael Sonnen. Is it that uh, they think that he's avoiding the drug test? Is it that they think that he's avoiding the fight itself? I mean, it doesn't help to have Chael Sonnen has been out there for months saying that Vanderlei Silva will never make the fight. And then you go and you make it look like Chael Sonnen actually knows what he's talking about. That's not going to play well for you. Yeah, um, and I think that the only thing that we can say for sure at this point is that everybody is acting like themselves in this <laughs> uh, situation. You had Chael Sonnen go on uh, Piper's Pit over on uh, uh, Fox Sports 1. Uh, State-run TV. That's right. Uh, and he got his promo time on there and was able to uh, start off with some of the more ironic statements you'll ever hear about it's how right. Right Vanderlei Silva has been competing most of his career under a cloud of drug sus suspicion. Uh, and then, you know, goes on to tell this tale about how Vanderlei Silva literally ran away from the, uh, the, the, uh, Nevada State Athletic Commission official that came and tried to get him to take a drug test. Which there's no uh, way Chelsea would know that. Right. All of which, of course, was gleefully repeated by a lot of people this week, despite the fact that there wasn't really any fact checking involved. And then, uh, Vanderlei Silva comes out with his video. Uh, response to all of this, which, uh, was weird and was one of those videos that appeared to be filmed in the, like, whatever weird dark cave Vanderlei Silva has as a video production studio. His video room, yeah. Uh, and as I think Brett Okamoto from ESPN pointed out, like, through the course of the video, it seemed like Vanderlei Silva was just sort of slowly getting closer to the camera. Uh, <laughs> almost That's like, how I as imagine, if, like a conversation with him in a bar right, yeah, like is. almost as if his, his default setting is to get close enough to within punching range of, like, whoever he's 
he's talking about. Uh, and he tells this bizarre story about how, uh, you know, some guy came to his gym speaking English, wanted him to sign some papers and ostensibly pee in a cup because he was going to supposed to take a drug test, uh, which I, I mean, doesn't play well. Like that story's not going to play well in our modern day, uh, drug sensitive sporting culture from a guy who's, you know, had this gym in America for what, like a decade, like almost, 10 yeah, years? yeah, probably, uh, uh, you know, I don't think that it was a good idea to try to play the confused by the man speaking English card from a guy who is known to be in America for that long and a professional fighter for so many years that like, you know, even if he didn't fully uh, comprehend the, the, the fineries, the like the subtleties of the conversation he's having with this guy, you know what that guy's there for. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, it just the whole thing just uh, struck me as him saying like, well, yeah, I mean, I didn't want to do the drug test now. I wanted to do it later. Uh, and which, hey, that's the whole point. That's why we do the drug test this way. That's why it's the only kind of drug test system that works. Cause, yeah, we know that you planned to do all your medical stuff and take all your drug tests when you get back from Brazil. Uh, the problem is that if you can plan for it, then it's not a meaningful drug test. Uh, and, you know, good for the Nevada Commission for, for trying to do this in the first place. Uh, and like you said, I mean, I don't know how much, uh, leeway Vanderlei Solo really thinks he's going to get on playing that card, uh, that I just didn't, I didn't understand the English talking man, uh, situation. But also, like you said, with Chael Sonnen going on, uh, Piper's pit there, and he starts off by saying that Vanderlei Silva has competed most of his career under this cloud of suspicion and then adds pretty much immediately, but he's never failed a drug test, so you can't say that. You just said it, man. You just said it. Yeah. And then you're saying, like, the whole thing. And like, if you take out the part about failing the drug test, like, you could be talking about yourself right now. You realize right. that, that's right? That's right. You know, you're the guy who has failed a drug test out of the two of you. Uh, so, yeah, you're right in saying that everybody did act like themselves right down to Vanderlei Silva filming his video blog response, which, is it me or does it seem like he's... He he kind of came out after this and was like, oh, don't worry, you guys. I'm going to explain everything in a video blog. Like, he felt like he really, like, all right, once I release this video blog, then everybody will be like, okay, we got it. Good, good. And it kind of had the opposite effect. Yeah, and I mean, it did tug at the heartstrings a little bit, I thought, when he sort of started getting teary-eyed at the idea that he wasn't going to get to go through with this fight. He still seemed uh, to think that he was going to well, fight. Yeah, and that's the view, the weirdest thing about it was that this video came out a couple of days after all of this stuff had been going on. Uh, and Vanderlei Silva very much gave the impression that he thought it was possible that he would still be in at UFC 175, which I think, you know, uh, speaks to both, uh, his own kind of, uh, misunderstanding maybe or like naivete maybe about what, like all the trouble that this was going to cause for him, but also like kind of speaks to the fact that no one from the UFC apparently told him that he was out and that Vitor was in or what was happening, which I think is a, another situation where like either they couldn't find him and get a hold of him or like, you know, once you're out, man, you are out. They are not going to call you to yeah. tell you what's up. Yeah. It does kind of seem like that is a situation. Also, I mean, I, I think that, uh, like Danny Downs mentioned in our trading shots thing this weekend, that maybe what people were upset about was that the, the perception that Vanderly Silva was avoiding this fight. And it does seem when he talks and gets teary eyed about how much he wants to, to beat up Chael Sonnen at UFC 175. That's the part I do believe. I right. do believe that yeah. he really, really wants that fight. Uh, I don't believe that he was just clueless as to what was going on with this drug testing scenario. Right. And it was all a big misunderstanding, right? No, it doesn't seem, uh, 
like it makes any sense for him to not want to have the fight. Like I legitimately believe that he wants to have the fight uh, right up until the moment that the surprise drug test guy shows up, and then he maybe know. not so much. Yeah. Well, let's uh, talk though about the 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 weird stakes now. Of the this, elephant in the room. Of this, the belt. young dinosaur in the room. <laughs> About, uh, you know, Chilson and the Vitor Belfort to fight at 205 pounds or maybe 185 pounds for a title shot at 185. Maybe if Vitor wins, maybe not so much if Chill wins. What the hell's going on there? Very strange situation. And again, kind of flies in the face of everything that we thought about uh, Vitor Belfort and like what was going to happen to him if and when he went back to Nevada to try to apply for a license, you know. As this whole thing was breaking, we found out that that Belfort had applied for a license the week prior to uh, this news breaking, which what's really going on? Kind of a what's really going on moment, like unless he just did that as a as, you know, uh, general course of action to try to get licensed there to so he could carry on with his UFC career in any venue. Uh, but kind of a strange move from the UFC to uh of all of the middleweights in the world that it could have grabbed out of thin air to insert into this fight, uh, Vitor Belfort, from a promotional standpoint, I think makes a lot of sense. From a regulatory standpoint, uh, is either a huge risk to try to put into this fight, because we still don't know what he, what's going to happen next month on, I believe, June 17th when he goes to his licensing hearing, uh, or uh, the UFC thinks somehow, like, or has, you know, believes has been assured maybe uh, that things are going to be okay, that he's going to coast through this licensing uh, hearing. And I guess we found out that he's been submitting uh, like weekly, I think, drug tests to the Nevada Athletic Commission for a while now. Uh, and they've been they've been uh, checking him out, uh, which probably has a lot to do with the confidence that he's going to be able to to make this date. But at the same time, like we've we've been led to believe or at least we assumed for a really long time that when he shows up at this meeting, uh, the issue of his drug test that he took at the World MMA Awards is going to come back and that maybe he's going to have to reveal whether he passed or failed, which seems like uh, if he failed. I'd be surprised if they let him fight, yeah. right? Seems or like maybe they, they will. Right? I don't know. You know, it, yeah, it is a situation where it seems like nobody knows what's going to happen, which is why I guess we're all really looking forward to this uh, commission hearing because, like you said, there's always the sneaking suspicion that maybe uh, some of these outcomes are, are predetermined. And it, uh, otherwise, it seems like a huge gamble on the UFC's part to throw him in there and just hope he gets licensed because that – that drug test thing seems like it has to come up somehow. Like, it can't just pretend it didn't happen. And I think, like we pointed out at the time, if Vitor Belfort had passed that drug test, you got to think he would have thrown it all in our fucking faces for questioning him so much. It also is just so weird, though, that, like, this was the card, you know, this card where Chris Weidman is defending his title, and it was supposed to be Vitor Belfort who he defended it against, but then he got pulled out of that one because of either something having to do either with that drug test or with the fear that he wouldn't be able to get off TRT and, and be healthy enough and time to, to do that fight. And now he's going to fight on this card anyway, or at least that's the plan. I mean, it's yeah. just so weird because it's like, wait a minute, is he, is he healthy enough? Can he, can he do that? Is he off TRT and have all that stuff out of his system and, and go out there and compete? Because I thought that was one of the big issues we were concerned about. Yeah, they were originally supposed to fight at UFC 173, that's right. I believe. And then, you know, after he dropped out, they, they moved the Weidman Machida fight to 175. But your point is a well taken. Of a couple months. Yeah, your point is well taken. It's weird uh, just to have him on the same card as this fight that he was originally supposed to be in. Um, and yeah, I think you bring up a valid point that uh, when TRT got banned, we heard a lot 
lot of horror stories from these endocrinologists about what was going to happen to all of these dudes who'd been on TRT. Uh, kind of seems like they're all fine. Yes. Which raises an, a bevy of other questions that a whole lot of other questions just don't have time to get into at this point. Uh, but lastly, I mean, I guess the, the question of the stakes of this fight. Sure. Yeah. Uh, if you're Vitor Belfort and you beat Chael Sonnen, and then basically, I guess you stay where you were, which is number one contender. If you're Chelsea and then you beat Vitor Belfort, uh, why shouldn't that qualify you for a title shot? Yeah, and I mean, in the situa- situation where now that Anderson Silva is not the champion anymore, uh, I guess everyone kind of experiences new life a little bit. Although, you know, Sonnen's like, well, at one and three in his last four fights, but all of his losses are to serious dudes. Um, he has made no bones in the past about the fact that he didn't want to fight Chris Weidman, but I assume uh, if there's a UFC belt on the line that he would probably make an exception. Hey, for all we know, Chris Weidman won't still be the champ after yeah. uh, UFC 175. Solid point. Solid point. And uh, if it were a Brazilian were the champ, you know Chael Sonnen would jump all over that opportunity to talk a bunch of shit. Yeah, maybe we do another season of The Ultimate Fighter. Who knows? No! Uh, <laughs> Well, that's going to do it for round number one. Sir Nigel Longstock's here. We're going to play a little Master Tweet Theater. We're going to start that right now. And it is that time again after a long delay. Friend of the podcast and noted theatricalist Sir Nigel Longstock joins us again. Sir Nigel, how the hell are you? Good day to you, sir. I live in a house. It's, I've heard that. I've heard that you, you moved out of the house that you shared with your now ex-girlfriend and back into the apartment that you moved out of when you moved in with your girlfriend. Yes, unfortunately, my girlfriend was killed in a gas explosion, and I must take a step forward in my life by returning to the exact circumstances I was in approximately two years ago. Well, that's that's really good, and I hope that you are cleared of all charges in that eventual gas explosion investigation. Uh, those of you who don't know how this works, so Nigel's going to read us off some tweets. Chad and I are going to try and guess who the, who the tweeters in question were. Uh, is there a theme, Sir Nigel? Yes, sir, there is a theme, but it really only applies to like one or two of the tweets. I, I've been moving, frankly. <laughs> the theme is Stop Biting My Style. Oh, I like this. Yes. I'm excited already, Chad. Are you ready? Oh, I'm ready. No, you're not. Okay, Sir Nigel, whenever you're ready. <clears throat> Let us begin. Tweet the first. Stop Biting My Style. Got it. Thanks. This is a, This is a retweet, so you will guess who did the retweeting. He is named in the tweet. It's a man. Okay, all right. It's a clue. I'm loving hearing Tweeter in question read tweets to him from his haters on the local radio. Hilarious. Okay, so what's happening here is the we're trying to guess who retweeted it, the person who is mentioned as being the one who was reading tweets about himself on the local radio. Yes, some mystery person retweeting this and also coincidentally biting my style. Your style? Yes, reading tweets on the radio. I invented that shit based on an idea Chad had. <laughs> I think I was the one that came up with the idea, but that's fine. We just give Chad credit for everything. Uh, fuck it, Pat Berry. Oh. Let's see, somebody who has haters and would also read the tweets on the radio. Um, I am going to go with... 
Ah, uh, UFC light heavyweight champion John Jones. You know what? I want to change my answer. I'm going to say Tito Ortiz. Hmm. Oh, really? Yeah, that's what I'm doing. Can we, can we ask what the why you've changed your answer? I don't really feel like Pat Barry has haters. Everybody kind of likes Pat Barry. Yeah, true. Both fine guesses. At least one of them competent to read, and both wrong. It was in fact Ryan Bader. Oh come on, really? In Phoenix, reading tweets on the radio. Not giving me a penny. Wow. <laughs> well, you should get your legal team on Ryan Bader's ass. Yeah, take that, Ryan Bader. Stop biting my style. I'm, sure, I'm sure at least he has like some nutritional supplements you could get a piece of. Oh, yeah, you get a bunch of creatine out of it. It'll be worth the trip. <laughs> Bus fare's only like $17. I can't lose. <clears throat> Tweet the second. Fuck political correctness. Gayest thing ever. Uh... First of all, it's saying that political correctness itself is the gayest thing ever? That is implied, yes. Okay. Unless it's just two unrelated thoughts he had while tweeting. Second of all, uh, is this one also biting your style? Uh, yes. Uh, exhibiting an opinion that is undercut by your own buffoonery. Stop biting my style. Feels like a war machine to me. Yeah, it's either war machine or somebody biting war machine style. Okay. I see what you did there. Sir it, Nigel? It is, it is War Machine <laughs> biting Phil Baroni's style by spelling Eva E-V-A. Well, uh, actually, I think now that you've mentioned it, a lot about War Machine's Twitter does bite Phil Baroni's style. Yes. Also, War Machine should stop tweeting immediately. No. Oh, that would be a terrible thing to happen to the, the podcast. Yes. Bad for everyone but him, I believe. <laughs> <clears throat> Tweet the third. I took a lots of tea, and I am ready for bed. Good night. Come on, man. Okay, how's this biting your style? This one is, is not really <laughs> biting my style, but there's a funny joke afterwards we'll all enjoy. Uh, can you read it again just so I can make sure I'm understanding the syntax correctly? Yes, yes. I took a lots of tea, and I am ready for bed. Good night. Vitor Belfort? Yeah, that's the obvious one there uh, with all of the tea he's been taking. Uh, you know what, though? Since you guessed that, I'll just I'll make it interesting. I'm going to go Vanderlei Silva, maybe returning from the bar in Curitiba. That's that's the other one I was thinking. Both fine guesses. One correct. It was Vitor Belfort. Yeah. Apparently experiencing low tea, and so he had to, you know, get ready for bed. How is tea spelled? Uh, T-E-A. Oh, that's a disappointment. Yes, but thrilling nonetheless is to it, come across. Is it possible that he didn't realize what he did there? I would say it's virtually certain. Victor <laughs> Belfort has not realized what he did since 1998. Oh, the young dinosaur. Mm, roaming the earth. <clears throat> Tweet the fourth. This one is accompanied by a picture, which I shall describe. <laughs> oh, good. That's, that's the future radio. Mm-hmm. Marciano loves Starbucks at Starbucks with a picture of the tweeter in question and his dog, a pit bull named Marciano. Okay, I feel like I've heard somewhere before about the fighter with a pit bull named Marciano, but I can't for life of me remember who it is. You want to take a shot at this one? Wow, I'm going to charge you with lying, sir. What, what am I lying about? Marciano is the canine companion of one, the poet, Philip Baroni. Oh, is that who it is? It is! It is the poet Philip Baroni and the dog Marciano 
and the national chain Starbucks. <laughs> we we have talked about Marciano yeah. on the show before, Don't right? Remember, there's that one video of Phil Baroni taking Marciano for a walk, and he says, like, kind of wistfully to the uh, interviewer, "Well, at least somebody in the family is undefeated." That's true. Oh God, now I'm sad all over again. Uh, both because of that anecdote and because I couldn't remember that it was the poet Philip Baroni. Marciano, a handsome animal, I must say. His ears brutally cropped. <laughs> Charming. Yes, don't do that to your dog. It's cruel. <clears throat> Tweet the fifth. Who are Diaz brothers? Crying face. Inscrutable Cyrillic characters. Crying face. I mean, this that to me sounds like it's got to be Nermi, right? Could be Nermi. Uh, could be Nermi. Uh, I mean, since you said that, I'm going to say C.R. Baharadazada. Both fine guesses. Both difficult for even I to say, but it is in fact Khabib Nurmagomedov. That's who I meant. <laughs> Kaboom. Khabib. <laughs> well... I guess good work, kind of. Uh, you, it's, you've been away for a while. Do you ha- you, I guess you've been working on something big, right? That would, that would have to be the assumption we would all draw. You know, it's funny you should ask because I have drawn from my recent experiences to prepare a project. Uh, it's about a, a homeless genius who ascends to the throne of England only to become homeless and crazy again. I see. And what is it called? The Fisher King Lear. <laughs> And what role do you play? I play his second favorite garbage can, Cordelia. (laughs) Well, I look forward to that. That was Master Tweet Theater, and that was the newly single Sir Nigel Longstock. Thank you, sir. Chad, we already established that on Saturday you shirked your duties as an MMA journalist. and Or uh, perhaps I lived up to them in every way. <laughs> and went off to watch cartoons while the rest of us sat there watching fucking Fight Pass uh, for 10 hours. But Yep, just I exercised my news judgment to watch those <laughs> cartoons rather than just report about whatever. Um, well, let me tell you something about my Saturday, uh, which began with the first fight at 10.30 a.m. in the One True Time Zone yep. uh, and ended at about 10.45 p.m. Uh, for starters, my in-laws were in town all last week. And, and, See, and now we're the getting weekend. to the truth. I'm glad that the truth is going to come out here, <laughs> that you would probably – you would sit in your office and wait, watch Fight Pass rather than hobnob with the in-laws. That's what was really going on here. Well, so – from my in-laws' perspective, most of the morning and uh, afternoon was me locked away in my office uh, watching fights and, and occasionally writing recaps of them uh, for my my employers, MMAJunkie.com. And then when the portion moved to the, the Brazilian tough finale fight card on TV, uh, my, my father-in-law came downstairs and was watching the fights with me, st- stuck down there throughout the whole thing, watched the whole fight card. Uh, and we got to the main event and then Stipe goes out there and just beats the shit out of Fabio Maldonado, who clearly had no business in a fight with a heavyweight like that. 
uh, and the whole thing is just kind of a mess. And I was, try- you know, and he was kind of like, what the hell? Like, this is what we, this is what we were waiting for. This is the thing that we were building up to here. And I was trying to explain to him, like, well, no, this was kind of a ridiculous fight and it wasn't the first plan. It was, you know, plan B basically. Uh, and as I f- was explaining it, uh, I really was confronted with the ridiculousness of the entire situation. Yeah, well, if nothing else, it was a fight that really kind of made me want to see Stipe Miocic fight Junior Dos Santos. Uh, because I already wanted to see that. Right, yeah, just sort of a reminder about how awesome that might have been. Uh, the strangest part about that fight being somewhat underwhelming and anticlimactic is uh, that it was pretty much the best-case scenario for everyone involved. Like, Stipe Miocic came out and got a quick and devastating win over Fabio Maldonado and therefore was able to emerge from this event without his status as a heavyweight contender affected in any way. Uh, Fabio Maldonado, who is a guy who is way too tough for his own good, and I think that's a thing that we've known about him for a while, uh, was able to uh, lose like almost everyone assumed that he would, but at the same time didn't have to suffer through like a 25-minute bloody beatdown, which is, I think, what a lot of people were afraid was about to happen during this fight, Uh, and you know, probably got concussed, but like could have been worse for him, all things considered. Uh, and for everybody who had been watching for 10 and a half hours, like they got to go to bed after 35 seconds, which <laughs> I think whether or not anybody wants to admit it was what they were all hoping for. I like your glass half full approach there. Well, it's like during the lead up to this, like I had only been watching the televised portion of this thing and I thought it was dragging on. And then during the lead up to the main event, they're like, you know, five rounds in the heavyweight division. And I'm sure everyone in the world was like, oh my God, please yeah. do not let this go five rounds. No, you know what? And this was the day, though, where I felt like uh, you were losing out the most by not subscribing to Fight Pass because the Fight Pass card from Berlin uh, was totally awesome. Yeah, uh, you look. I mean, just on paper, you look at it, and and it seems like they b- kind of booked it backwards, really. It, yeah, th- that was the one that should have been on TV if you could really choose, and time zones weren't such an issue. Uh, but then, you know, and it was, as I wrote after the event, I was kind of surprised at myself because after that one ended at roughly, you know, 2.30 in the afternoon, uh, and I was thinking, yeah, I'm kind of pumped up. This was a good day of fight so far. I could, I could, uh, you know, take a little 45 minute break here, uh, and, uh, catch a, catch a little shut eye and then pop right back up for another fight card. And then this one, the ultimate fighter finale kind of, kind of dragged on at certain points, especially when, uh, it seemed like we had already had about 12 prelims, and I heard John Anik say the words, the featured prelim bout of the, of the night, and I thought, oh, God, it's 7.30, and we're only on the featured prelim. Uh, that, th- that was a low moment for me during all of this. Uh, but, you know, I think that uh, if we kind of take a step back and look at the whole ambitious UFC plan to run two events in one day, you, even if you, you ended on a bit of a weird, sour note, could have been a whole lot worse. I mean, this went better than you could really have hoped for, I think. Yeah, well, you got four weeks before they're going to do it again. Oh, so uh, hold on to that feeling, I guess. <laughs> um, let's well, let's talk a little bit about the, the idea of doing these two fight cards on the same day, which they're going to do three more times this year. Uh, because I spent all damn week trying to figure out like what it meant, you know, because for the UFC to do it, it strikes to me kind of an audacious chord in a, in a way because the, uh, the, the debate that the rest of us have been having around, 
uh, the UFC's continually ballooning live event schedule is like, all right, at what point do we get to the point that it's like, this is too much? Like, at what point do, do you kind of pop the balloon? Uh, and, you know, at least publicly, UFC executives have systematically, categorically refused to acknowledge that that, that oversaturation uh, is a possibility. And you're a fucking idiot if you think otherwise. Right. And so to go out and, and do two fight cards in one day, it almost felt like a thumb in the eye. Of critics who, who like have been trying to say that the UFC does too many shows. Uh, but after I thought about it for a long time, uh, you know, I came around to the idea like maybe Dana White was telling us the truth right at the beginning when he talked to John Morgan about this last November. And he said, look, the fight cards that we do in China are going to be for China. The fight cards that we do in Europe are going to be in Europe. And if people want to watch them on Fight Pass, you know, they're essentially more than welcome to. And I thought like maybe he was telling us the truth about that. Maybe they're just going to do these like weirdly regionalized fight cards. And if an international audience tunes in, that's essentially just gravy for them. I'm not sure that's a great idea, but like, is that really what they're thinking? Is that what's happening here? I think that's a kind of a, uh, after the fact justification. I mean, I think that that makes sense in terms of like, here's why we're doing this fight card at this time. And it explains some of the, uh, the inclusion or the placement on the card of some guys from that area or from whatever country they're in. But at the same time, you're going to tell me that is that what you say to CB Dalloway? Look, man, you got to come over here and uh, fight in Berlin because uh, the, the fights we do in Germany are for Germans and the fights we do in Singapore are for Singapore and the fights we do on the dark side of the moon are for weird looking moon people. Like, that's not really comforting to you if you're a fighter who, uh, especially if you're a fighter from somewhere else and you're thinking, like, wait a minute, this is still like a very important moment in my career. You know, you only get so many opportunities as a professional fighter to, to get out there, make yourself known, get that money and to basically be kind of like thrown away on one of these cards where the UFC is saying, yeah, we don't really care if uh, other people aside from the people in this region, watch it. I would be pissed off at that. And especially it's like uh, a guy like Gegard Mousasi who gets a big win there. And we're talking about, you know, who, what serious contender he should face next it's tough to have that exist side by side with, yeah, but these fights, they really aren't for you. Right. Uh, you know, I mean, because it's like you want us to be fans of the sport. You keep telling us that real fight fans will love this shit and they'll watch as many events as you can possibly pump out. Uh, that can't also go along with, but we don't care if you watch or not. Yeah. So then I guess what is the answer then? What's the philosophical reasoning behind doing these two events in one day? Just because, uh, you know, we joked about it at the top of the show, but it really does seem like advancing to the point where any normal adult person just simply can't watch all of your product. Well, even if you can watch it all. I think it's also a thing where people are going to come away from it. And when there's 22 fights, and I sat there and watched all 22. And afterwards, it's hard to totally make sense of what you saw. Like you're going to forget a lot. You just can't hold that much information right. like in your brain. And it's like you're trying, you're going to try to build off of these results for the next fights and for future events, right? Like a guy like Nicholas Backstrom, who has like an awesome showing, uh, you want to be able to, to build off of that and to, uh, you know, use his performance here to, to uh, hype his next fight and, and get people excited about him. But when it's just one part of like this just 
enormous uh, body of information and, and, and results that's just being thrown at people, it's harder for any one thing to stand out and for people to, to make sense of it. Not to mention, like you said, if people have actual lives and families and stuff that they have to attend to and they, you know, for some crazy reason just can't sit around for 12 hours on a Saturday uh, glued to the TV or the laptop, then they're just going to miss some shit. Right. And I guess that returns me to my initial question. Like, why do this? Like, what's what's the theory behind this? Is it is it simple enough? Like, is the actual reason for this simple enough that the UFC has done the math and knows that it's going to make more money by doing 46 mostly mediocre shows than it would make doing 26 like totally awesome shows? Like, is that all we're dealing with here? Well, I think part of it is that it feels that it needs to break into new markets and actually stay there rather than, you know, going somewhere like Germany once every five years or going to Ireland, you know, once every few years. Like, I feel like it, it, they probably think that they need a more concerted effort in some of those places to to get those people's money along with everybody else's money. And that, you know, in order to really do that, then you have to give them fight cards uh, according to their timetable and, and giving them the, the kind of fighters at least you think they want to see. Uh, rather than just like, hey, you have to do your fight card at 2 a.m. so that we can sh send it uh, back to America at a decent time. I think that's part of it. I also, though, think that it's the, the UFC roster has gotten to the point with so many different weight classes uh, and so many different fighters that you have to find a way to give people fights. Like, otherwise, you're going to be in breach of contract. And I think that's one of the reasons why you saw, like, the size of a lot of fight cards getting bigger. It used to be, you know, 10 fights was kind of the standard. Now it's not uncommon to see 12 or 13 almost every time out. So I think that it's kind of those kind of competing interests that they need to find fights for these guys and they need to create new events, uh, new markets, uh, and all that stuff just kind of builds and builds. And uh, they also are just steadfastly refuse to acknowledge, like you said, that oversaturation is even a possibility. That and, and that to me is really kind of insane. Like you have to acknowledge that it's out there. Like if you did, you know, three events every uh, Saturday. Uh, all year round, you would have to acknowledge that that would be too much, right? And so once you agree that there is a too much, then we're just arguing about what it is. The thing I always wonder is when Dana White makes these arguments where he's saying, well, real fight fans like, like this, real fight fans would never complain about this. At what point do you just end up accidentally convincing people that they don't want to watch, that they aren't real yeah. fight? Because you keep telling people that eventually some people are going to say, all right, I guess you're right. I guess I'm not a real fight fan. I'll be over here. Uh, watching golf or being with my family. Right. Yeah. No, it's, it's, uh, a lot of it is baffling to me, to be honest with you. And, uh, as a guy who's been an enormous fan of this sport, my entire adult life and, uh, would have been more than happy to consume every single moment of UFC programming in, in many of the years past. Like it's a very strange place to be, especially because of that weird question. Like, what do you have to do to be a quote unquote good and bad fight fan, which I assume is going to be uh, a question that we grapple with moving forward on this podcast, because none of these issues are going to go away anytime soon. Um, but it, it's just a very strange situation uh, to, to be in. And, and uh, even though uh, you make fun of me and I'm sure that a lot of people may are going to make fun of me for not sitting through it. Like I have to imagine that I'm in the majority of uh of UFC fans who probably didn't watch all 10 and a half hours of this. Uh, but uh, let's do, are you fucking kidding me? And then we'll move on to, uh, to round number three. Uh, ben, what's your, are you fucking kidding me this week? Well, Chad, speaking of problems that might be created when you try and run too many shows, uh, you might've noticed if you had tuned in to watch uh, 
the the event from Berlin that the canvas looked oddly free of sponsors uh, for a UFC event. It just looked like some old school shit where it just said UFC in the middle and then it was just blank stuff all around. Well, it turns out that's because uh, the UFC accidentally sent the canvas that was it was supposed to send to Berlin uh, to Brazil. Easy mistake. Just put the wrong zip code on there. That might be a sign that you're doing maybe a couple too. Are you fucking kidding me? You sent the canvas to the wrong goddamn hemisphere? That's a sign you have a problem. You fucking kidding me? It's just a a matter of 6,400 miles. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> uh, ben, I know that you saw this. It was on your website. Stephen Morocco today published a story uh, from this Berlin, Germany, I believe, media scrum that Dana White did after it, which I think was an hour and 20 minutes long. Uh, but at some point, I don't know if it was Stephen that asked him, somebody asked him who might take over for him uh, when, the, when the time comes for, for him to either walk away from this sport or die suddenly in a motorcycle wreck in Maine, <laughs> as, we, as we've discussed in the past. Uh, and he said a guy that he could see taking over the UFC would be Chael Sonnen. Huh. To which every single right-thinking person in the world responded, No! Are you fucking kidding me? Chael Sonnen. A dude who's the latter part of his entire professional career is based on lying. That's the dude we're going to have run the UFC. <laughs> All right, I mean, okay, I guess. Are you fucking kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's going to do it for round two. We'll be right back with round number three. Ben, uh, former UFC lightweight champion Benson Henderson returns to the octagon this weekend for the first time since his split decision win over Josh Thompson all the way back in January. Uh, he is going to headline the UFC Fight Night event in Albuquerque, New Mexico against Rustam Habalov. Uh, on Saturday night. And more than anything, man, is this a fight that reminds us what a totally weird position Benson Henderson currently occupies in the sport uh, as a guy who's the former champion and, and uh, only has one loss dating back to 2011. Uh, but his loss immediately prior to that was also to Anthony Pettis. He's lost twice now to the current champion. So while a guy who uh, is very well regarded and has been very successful, just ain't going to fight for the title anytime soon. Uh, yeah. Did you happen to catch the ads for this one that uh, the UFC played kind of throughout the tough Brazil finale? You know, that's weird. I missed those. One of the things that was striking to me was that when we see Benson Henderson on the screen and we hear him talking and he's saying stuff like, I go out there to finish people. I'm not just trying to win rounds. I'm trying to go out there and hurt people and put them away. Um, you know, kind of like typical uh, fighter soundbite kind of stuff, except – it's the exact opposite of how he is perceived and what he is, you know, criticized for by fans and by actually like what you see on his record. Like talking about how he's going out there to finish people and it's like, man, it's, it's like somebody interviewed Bizarro Ben Henderson, uh, and, and got those answers because man, it's kind of just throwing it in your face, like, like begging you to raise the issue. Like, no, actually, that's not what you do. You don't even come close to doing that from what we can see. Yeah, and I mean, maybe it's a situation where you like, if that's going to be your fighting style, you need to say the opposite thing, right? <laughs> so uh, at least some people will believe you. But I mean, you know, Ben Henderson uh, had a fair amount of stoppages and submission victories during uh, the early days of his career. It wasn't really until... Uh, 
his his UFC run and uh you know a, a, that he uh that he kind of got a little bit conservative and started stringing together those decisions all those decisions right in a row uh and some of that has to be attributed to uh the competition that he was fighting it's not like he was fighting schmoes you That's know there's a lot of Gilbert Melendez Frankie Edgar Jim Miller type guys on those uh, on his record you know guys that that are are just tough as hell and and aren't really getting finished by anybody now that said you know, I, I I have as many problems with the the Benson Henderson decision streak and the uh, the uh, the 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 shaky nature of a lot of those decisions that he won when he was the champion uh, as anybody does. Uh, but but at the same time, like uh, you know, he I assume he is going out there with the intention of I'm going to win this fight via some sort of definitive fashion. Like he the plan can't be like, well, I'm just gonna gut it out via split decision, like I did against Frankie Edgar and Gilbert Melendez, Josh Thompson. Right. I believe it's probably not that overt in his mind that he thinks that that's what he's gonna do. But I think that uh his fighting style definitely he's gotten really good at winning rounds, uh really getting busy toward the end of a round. Uh, but I like we said before you can't really do that for too long until it comes and bites you in the ass. You win a bunch of split decisions. All it takes is for one night, one judge who's just not super into what you're doing, uh, scores one round a different way and boom, you, you lose one of those fights that way. Uh, and then you got a real uphill climb. And this is, I think, a, a tougher fight than a lot of people realize just on, you know, name recognition alone here. Yeah, you know, for for sure. Uh, uh, speaking of like how long it's been since since Ben Henderson lost, Ruslan Hobolov hasn't lost since February 2011. Uh, he's got a three fight win streak in the UFC, and uh, you know is coming in off a of fight of the night performance when he beat uh, George Masvidal uh, in November of last year. Uh, and and you know Masvidal, a guy who who is uh, you know a middle level guy, but also no slouch and and a tough dude who's going to give anybody a tough fight. So uh, uh, you're right i think um and th- this will be a good test for hobelov and uh you know ma- a chance for him to to show what he's got if he goes out there and beats benson henderson then shit man you're uh you're right in the mix as we like to say you Trademark are you in are right mix. in the mix however if you're benson henderson you go out there and you win another split decision against uh uh rust hobby here uh not going to play well for you, I have to think. No, you'd think, if anything, this is a matchup where he's going to have to do something definitive uh, and, you know, add to the the Benson-Henderson highlight reel in some way, shape, or form, or else this is probably going to be considered a, an underwhelming performance by him. Uh, we talked a minute ago about the regionalization of, of UFC cards, and you look at this card for uh, this Fight Night show this weekend, and, and this is definitely one where the... Uh, the United States Southwest is going to be holding it down. That's right. In these top three three fights, at least, uh, you know, Ben Henderson, obviously an Arizona native, fights out of the lab from down there, and then you got uh, Diego Sanchez and John Dodson, both from uh, Greg Jackson's Albuquerque-based camp. So, uh, hometown guys, really, uh, in those in those top three fights. This is another situation where we see. Uh, the UFC trying to get people in the door for the live gate or, or like what's the theory behind the, uh, the, the regionalization of some of these cards. Well, yeah, that is probably what they're thinking there. And it makes sense that you, you go to Albuquerque and, uh, you, if you're UFC, you just happen to have a bunch of guys who train out of Albuquerque and guys like Diego Sanchez who are actually homegrown from Albuquerque. That's nice to have around. I mean, it, it is one of those things where, Diego Sanchez, I guess, still has like name recognition, but, uh, he's lost two of his last or three of his last four, actually. Uh, and 
it would be hard to imagine a bunch of other cards. Like if it was, if this one were in, you know, Newark, New Jersey, for example, hard to imagine him being the co-main event of uh, a bigger UFC event. So this does seem like we're seeing some of that regionalization at work. At the same time, it's not a bad card when you look at it for, especially for free TV. No, uh, yeah, I think that it's uh, it ha- it has the potential to be several entertaining hours over there on on Fox Sports One, uh, and we'll have to see what happens with the main event, whether or not that plays out to be <laughs> a crowd pleaser or a uh, a Benson Henderson special. But uh, you know, Albuquerque, a city that uh, that has obviously the Jackson Winklejohn camp there, and also. Uh, you know, a fairly good uh, independent MMA scene from what we're led to believe. Uh, Jackson's has a, a series of fights that they that they do there. And, and uh, I think that there's a couple of other smaller uh, MMA promotions in the in the region. So you'd think it would be a place where uh, the UFC might be able to roll in and do well for itself uh, with a with a first show, uh, 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 you know, featuring guys from from the hometown and that a lot of guys who are probably going to be handing out tickets. The week of the uh, the week of the event. Yeah, I can imagine you, they're drumming up a lot of business there at that weird looking uh, gas station that you see on Breaking Bad. Uh, <laughs> you know, when I notice here, you look at this uh, and you kind of look at this whole card, and you got you know some pretty good name recognition going on there throughout it. And it's also though one of those things where coming right off of the day where you do two events in one day, and then hey, we're right back again next weekend with this card where you know there's nothing that really totally jumps out at you where you think, okay, this is the one I got to be in my seat for this one, otherwise I'll hate myself forever. Uh, it kind of this is the kind of card where it feels to me like we're really driving home the point that it's just, well, every Saturday is fight night, endless kind of fight week, uh, endless, you know, as soon as we get done hyping one, we're turning right around and hype the next. Uh, and it just becomes kind of routine. And this is something I've seen people argue about whether that's a good or a bad thing, because on one hand, it, you know, if you're a hardcore fight fan, I guess it is good for you to know, well, Saturday night is the night I sit home and put on Fox Sports 1 and watch some fights. And, and that's kind of awesome. At the same time, if every weekend is fight weekend, uh, does it just become not special anymore and not something that where you spend several days looking forward to it? Well, yeah, it's a thing we've talked about a lot on this podcast and, and uh, you know, a thing that uh, I think none of us really anticipated how much the sport was going to change with the the – uh, the formulation of this deal with Fox and the sheer number of events and, and the kind of programming that the UFC puts on for, for Fox in addition to its own pay-per-view events and stuff like that. And, and uh, it does make things feel a little less, you know, I don't know if less special is the right word, but it definitely gives you less opportunity to prepare. Right. Like it's, it's kind of like, except for in really, really uh, big events, it's kind of done away with the idea of like appointment viewing where you would wait like all month to see the UFC card that you really wanted to see just because, you know, tonight we got, or this Saturday we got Benson Henderson against Rustam Hobolov and next week, uh, Demetrius Johnson against, uh, Ali Baganatinov, uh, which, you know, you look at the names of the guys main eventing these next two cards. It could be a view into the future uh, of how things are going to go internationally. But, but you know, like it's, you just, you don't even have any time to prepare really like, or mentally like or think, mark it on your calendar or even know who's on the card. Really? Right. Yeah. You don't get a chance to think too far ahead because you just have to think to the next one. However, I used to like it 
like that aspect of it when it used to be like a Wednesday night uh, Spike TV fight night kind of thing. Remember when they would do that? Like that seemed maybe just because of the difference of like uh, the cultural importance we place on Saturday night. But the when it seemed to be like, oh, well, hey, every Wednesday or like one Wednesday a month or something like that, there will be a UFC card. Uh, and that somehow felt more in keeping with what the size of the card was and what we were supposed to expect out of it. And it was like, all right, hey, weekly USC show kind of thing. Uh, that somehow felt like, all right, the the hype is commensurate with the product that we're being delivered. And hey, you're staying home on a Wednesday night. What's the big deal anyway? Somehow when it's just like every Saturday night is fight night uh, and the fight night's are not always all that spectacular, that somehow seems like uh, maybe you're selling me something that you're not delivering. Right, and again, I think it gets back to that point that we were talking about last round where it's like, can you really honestly expect your fans to give up every Saturday night? You know, Can you expect them to even consume all of this product, which uh, is going to be a question that I think we're going to have to reckon with uh, either th- this year or next year because right now it doesn't seem like there's any slowing down. Uh, but yeah, let's do uh, Just Saying Stuff, and then we'll get out of here for, for this week, Ben. Uh, just in keeping with what we were just talking about, uh, you know, I know we all kind of trashed Patrick Cummins a few months ago when they called upon him on short notice to fight Daniel Cormier. Fucking coffee and, barista, uh, is that what you're saying? And he came out and got waxed pretty fast. Uh, at this point, I'm starting to feel a little bad for the guy. And let me tell you why. He is, in fact, going to get his second opportunity in the UFC against a guy named Roger Narvaez. Nailed, Nailed it. it. Uh who does not have a Wikipedia page, so I'm giving Patrick Cummins a slight edge here uh, <laughs> in my matchmaking, and, and you know I'm going to set the line a little bit in favor of Patrick Cummins. But if you look at this card of this week's Fight Night event, all of these car, all of these fights are on television on Fox Sports 1, except one. It's the first fight of the night. Oh, no. And it's Patrick Cummins against Roger Narvaez, and that one is only on Fight Pass. Oh. I'm just saying, come on, guys. Can't we do one nice thing for Patrick Cummins? Just one. I think it's too late for him to get that job back at the at the coffee place. You know, though, those places are always hiring, man. Yeah. Well, Chad, uh, this week I'm just saying, I mentioned it earlier in the show, uh, but a kind of a breakout performance for uh, featherweight Nicholas Backstrom, uh, who submitted Tom Nienimaki. Oh, nailed it, uh, I feel like. In the first round, a, a really... Exciting fight, uh, good performance by Backstrom, and uh, really kind of unconventional method of getting the choke there at the end. It just uh, was great for him, but even better slash weirder were his remarks in the post-fight interview where he seemed uh, both incredibly intense and also almost adorably childlike at times, uh, especially talking about how he's going to go back to the hotel and call his girlfriend uh, and later talking about how he owed his girlfriend rent money, which now he could pay her uh, now that he had won and and got a performance bonus. Uh, But this week, I'm just saying one of the best parts about that interview was Nicholas Backstrom telling people who uh, thought that him committing full-time to becoming an MMA fighter was just a big yoke. Uh, and that he is, in fact, not yoking around. Uh, I guess I'm kind of just saying that if Nicholas Backstrom's uh, nickname going forward here is not the Yoker, then we all just fucked up. We should be really disappointed in ourselves because this, this is the perfect opportunity. The Yoker. I'm just saying. 
Nicholas the Yoker Backstrom. Well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We'll be back next week to break down all the stuff that uh, happens at this fight fight card in Albuquerque. And then look ahead to UFC 174 as well. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. You know what your problem is? What's that? You're a yoke. I look at you and I just think, what a yoke. You know, I, you, you yoke around too much. And sometimes I take it seriously. And I'm crazy.